0: During today's episode, I'm gonna be telling you about a new podcast I think you should check out. It's called Uneffing the Republic, but they don't say effing, and boy, could we use some of that right now. So hear me out, mid-show, when I tell you more about it. And now. Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the fallout from the January 6th insurrection, the case for impeachment and or punishment for every single person involved, and discussions for why this process is so important to the stability of the country. Clips today are from The Bradcast, Democracy Now!, a speech from Representative Cory Bush, The Brian Lehrer Show, Start Making Sense, The United States of Anxiety, Citations Needed, Late Night with Seth Meyers, Past Present, and What Trump Can Teach Us About Con Law. Five, six people have lost
1: their lives many more have have been traumatized and yet in after all of that after they perpetuated that lie amplified that lie uh, knowing that that violence needed that lie after they told that lie after they saw people lose their life on the steps of the Capitol, afterwards not even and i'm sorry not even a i i didn't i didn't know that me doing this would result or contribute to this violence and if i had known i wouldn't do it and i'm sorry you know if in the last 3 4 weeks we heard that i'd be my response would be a little different right now but no the response in the last 3 4 weeks is we did the right thing I would do it again. I would do it again. I don't regret it at all. And so if that is your stance for these insurrectionists and these people who incited the violence, if that's their stance, then that means they continue to to be a danger to their colleagues. Because what they are saying is, given those same conditions, I will choose to endanger my colleagues again for political gain.
2: That was uh, New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, speaking about her experience on January 6th. She went on to say, uh, again, it was an hour-long uh, conversation to her followers on Instagram, that um, they're trying to tell us to move on without any accountability, without any truth-telling, or without confronting the extreme damage, loss of life, trauma, Uh, She says, the reason I say this and the reason I'm getting emotional at one point, she says, is because they told us to move on and that it's not a big deal that we should forget what happened or even telling us to apologize. She says, these are the tactics of abusers. As She was on the verge of tears and explains uh, that she is a survivor of sexual assault. Adding that she hadn't told many people that in her life, but she said, when we go through trauma, trauma compounds on each other. So, with that in mind, just to give you a sense of, uh, you know, if you're wondering why uh, so many in the House and the Senate are still concerned and are still talking about and still wish to see justice and accountability— For what happened on January 6th, I think that um, that just gives you an idea of what one of the victims of the attack at the Capitol went through. Just to give you some color, as Republicans are busy trying to push all of this down the memory hole.
1: Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez of New York organized a special session to give lawmakers a chance to talk about what happened that day. 29 days ago, on January 6th of 2021, insurrectionists attacked our capital, seeking to overturn the results of our nation's election. 29 days ago, The glass in and around this very chamber was shattered by gunshots, clubs, by individuals seeking to restrain and murder members of Congress, duly elected to carry out the duties of their office. 29 days ago, Officer Sicknick, who just laid in honor yesterday in our nation's capital, was murdered on the steps just outside this hollowed floor. Two Capitol police officers, have lost their lives since, in addition to the four other people who died on the events of January 6th. 29 days ago, food service workers, staffers, children ran or hid for their lives from violence deliberately incited by the former president of the United States. Sadly, Less than 29 days later, with little to no accountability for the bloodshed and trauma of the sixth, some are already demanding that we move on, or worse, attempting to minimize, discredit, or belittle the accounts of survivors. In doing so, they not only further harm those who were there that day, And provide cover for those responsible. But they also send a tremendously damaging message to survivors of trauma all across this country, that the way to deal with trauma, violence, and targeting is to paper it over, minimize it, and move on. That's New York Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez speaking Thursday. Her sister squad member, Congressmember Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, also spoke.
3: This is so hard because as many of my colleagues know, my closest colleagues know, on my very first day of orientation, I got my first death threat. It was a serious one. They took me aside. The FBI had to go to the gentleman's home. I didn't even get sworn in yet, and someone wanted me dead for just existing. More came later, uglier, more violent. One celebrating and writing the New Zealand massacre and hoping that more would come. Another mentioning my dear son, Adam. (laughs) Mentioning him by name. Each one paralyzed me each time. (laughs) So what happened on January 6th, all I could do was thank Allah that I wasn't here. I felt overwhelming relief. And I feel bad for Alexandria, so many of my colleagues that were here. But as I saw it, I thought to myself, thank God I'm not there. I saw the images that they didn't get to see until later. My team and I decided at that point, we'd keep the death threats away. We try to report them, document them, to keep them away from me because it just paralyzed me and all I wanted to do was come here and serve the people that raised me. The people that told my mother who only had eighth grade education that she deserves human dignity. People that believed in me. And so it's hard. It's hard when my seven brothers and six sisters beg me to get protection many urging me to get a gun for the first time, and I have to tell you the trauma from just being here, existing as a Muslimah is so hard, but imagine my team, which I lovingly just adore. They are diverse. I have LGBTQ staff. I have a beautiful Muslimah that wears her hijab proudly in the halls. I have black women that are so proud to be here to serve their country. And I worry every day for their lives because of this rhetoric. I never thought that they would feel unsafe here. And so I ask my colleagues to please try not to dehumanize what's happening. This is real. And you know many of our residents from the shootings in Charlottesville too the massacre, the synagogue, all of it. All of it is led by hate rhetoric like this. And so I urge my colleagues to please, please take what happened on January 6th seriously. It will lead to more death and we can do better. We must do better. Thank you.
4: Madam Speaker, St. Louis and I rise with a message for our Republican colleagues. On January 6th, 6th, I thought about January 3rd, and I thought about how we all raised our right hands up and took an oath, each and every one of us. On this very floor, we swore that we would support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Even though that constitution wasn't written for people who look like me. Even that constitution wasn't written by people who look like me. And even though that constitution cemented an unjust nation for people like me. My team and I got to work and we unveiled legislation to investigate and expel those who were responsible for inciting this attack so that we could defend it because we have a duty to fight for a more perfect union because we cannot stand up to white supremacy in this, because if we cannot stand up to white supremacy in this moment as representatives, then why did you run for office in the first place? No matter what district you represent, no matter where you live, no matter Democrat or Republican, you represent a district that is on average about 700,000 people. Meaning you have to resent those who love you, those who despise you, those who voted for you, those who swear they'll never cast a vote for you. People who talk like you and people who don't look like you building better communities, building better lives, building a better society. It's not a Democratic or Republican issue. We can't build a better society if members are too scared to stand up and act to reject the white supremacist attack that happened right before our eyes. How can we trust that you will address the suffering that white supremacy causes on a day-to-day basis in the shadows if you can't even address the white supremacy that happens right in front of you in your house? Does your silence speak to your agreement is the question. In St. Louis, the COVID-19 pandemic is disproportionately hospitalizing and killing black and brown people. Well, I've lived that. We have people dying from gun violence, a crisis that stems from decades of economic disinvestment and disruption over from an over-reliance on policing that is that this very chamber has continually voted to endorse. I've cried those tears. You don't know what that's like. So I ask you today, take a moment to think about what it's like to live what we live through. If you cannot do what's right in the face of blatant, heinous, vile white supremacists attack like the one we just saw, how will you do right by the black and brown people you represent who just want to know that our children will have safety, that our children will have life, and that they will have shelter because you represent us too. So on January 3rd, we stood together to swear our oath to office to the Constitution. We swore to defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Well, it was attacked by a domestic enemy called white supremacy. And we must stand together now, today, to uphold that oath and hold every single person who helped incite it accountable. Thank you. And I yield back.
2: Donald Trump endangered the lives of all members of Congress when he aimed a mob of supporters, quote, like a loaded cannon at the U.S. Capitol. That, according to House Democrats on Tuesday, in making their most detailed case yet. In fact, an 80 page trial memorandum submitted in advance of Trump's second Senate impeachment trial set to begin next Tuesday, detailing why the former president should be convicted and permanently barred from office. For his part, in a 14-page declaration by the two lawyers that Trump was able to hire at the last minute after his entire five-person legal team left him over the weekend, Trump denied the allegations, all of them, and called the trial itself unconstitutional. The two filings offer the first public glimpse of the arguments that will be presented to the Senate beginning next week in response to the violence in the Capitol just last month, which the senators uh, witnessed firsthand, the senators who will sit as jurors in this trial. Held in the very chamber where the insurrectionists stood on January 6th, it will pit Democratic demands for a final measure of accountability against the desire of many Republicans to, yes, Turn the page and, yes, move on with no accountability at all for the man that the Democrats charge with inciting the attempted insurrection. It is hard to imagine, frankly, that any of this at all would have occurred without Donald Trump's encouragement. And yet that is what his lawyers now appear to be arguing along with the claim that the process itself is unconstitutional and it's a violation of Trump's First Amendment rights to free speech. The Democratic legal brief forcefully links Trump's baseless efforts to overturn the results of the presidential election to the deadly riot at the Capitol, as AP reports it, saying that he bears, quote, "...unmistakable blame for actions that threatened the underpinnings of American democracy." It argued that he must be found guilty on a charge of inciting the siege and uses evocative language to conjure the day's chaos when, quote, terrified members were trapped in the chamber and called loved ones, quote, for fear that they would not survive. Trump's attorneys did not dwell on the mayhem itself in their telling of what happened, whereas the Democratic managers invoked dramatic imagery captured by cell phone footage and and media reports of, quote, terrified lawmakers trapped inside the building. You just heard one of them who, quote, prayed and tried to build makeshift defenses while rioters smashed the entryway, unquote. In their brief, managers laid out a stark and disturbing compilation of what unfolded inside the Capitol that day. Members donning gas masks and calling loved ones for fear that they would not survive the assault. Capitol police officers dragging furniture to barricade the House chamber. The staff of House uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Another one that I suspect would be scared for her life along with AOC and for good reason. Staffers of hers hiding under a table with the lights out for hours as they listened to the rioters just outside their door. Uh, One member asked his chief of staff to protect his visiting daughter and son-in-law with her life, which she did by standing guard at the door, clutching a fire iron while his family hid under a table. The brief stated in reference to Congressman Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland, who is the lead impeachment manager
3: and had just buried his own son not a week before.
2: This is precisely the sort of constitutional offense that warrants disqualification from federal office. The Democrats argue their filing makes clear their plan to associate Trump's words with the resulting violence, tracing his efforts to subvert democracy to when he first said last summer, long before Election Day itself, that he would not accept the election results if he was shown to be the loser. And then all the way through the November contest and as many failed attempts thereafter to challenge the results in court in more than 60 different failed cases all across the country. When those efforts fail, the Democrats write a uh, quote. He turned to improper and abusive means of staying in power. Specifically, they detail uh, his uh, pressure campaign that he launched against state election officials, uh, against the Justice Department and at Congress itself, basically at anybody and everybody who he thought could st- he could strong arm somehow into somehow agreeing with him that, oh, yeah, he won the election, which all available evidence shows that he did not. The Democrats cite the unsuccessful efforts, for example, to sway Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, as we heard in that infamous recorded phone call, haranguing and threatening Raffensperger to, quote, find 11000 votes to flip the election. Of course, Raffensperger was smart enough or somebody in his office was smart enough to, to tape record that call. There was also similar calls reportedly made to Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia. And to uh, another election official in uh, in Georgia. He also uh, tried to harangue even his own former attorney general, Bill Barr, who by and large left the DOJ early because of Trump's insistence that Barr find a way to steal the election for him, even if it meant bringing false voter fraud charges against people. Sure. Put other people in jail so that I can stay in office. The Democrats write in their brief quote, the only honorable path at that point was for President Trump to accept the results and concede his electoral defeat. Instead, he summoned a mob to Washington, exhorted them into a frenzy and aimed them like a loaded cannon down Pennsylvania Avenue. Hard to disagree with that loaded cannon metaphor, uh, even if one wants to argue that he may have loaded the cannon, but, well, he didn't personally fire it. Though Democrats here are arguing that, yes, he did that as well, Trump became fixated on January 6th, the managers right. They note that many of uh, Trump's supporters, including the Proud Boys, who Trump had told to, quote, stand back and stand by at a September debate, were already primed for the violence. They write, given all of that, the crowd which assembled on January 6th, unsurprisingly included many who were armed and angry and dangerous and poised on a hair trigger for President Trump to confirm that they indeed had to, quote, fight to save America from an imagined conspiracy, according to the Democrats.
0: I have a new show to introduce you to. I've told you about them once before, and I'm going to tell you about them again. We're big fans of each other's work, and so my task is to try to explain why they are worth checking out. So the show's called Unf***ing the Republic. So what's it like? Well, the other day I, I heard about the New York Times primal scream hotline for parents who've been pushed to the edge by the pandemic, and just now I was thinking, is Unf***ing the Republic kind of like a political primal scream podcast but then i thought no that's not quite right but close maybe it's more like the calm narrator reading the subtext of a primal scream like if we were in an episode of the wonder years or something and we let out a primal scream of frustration while watching the news then the voice of the host of Unfucking the Republic would pipe up and calmly but firmly explain the details of what's going wrong in the world.
5: Yeah. It's a good time to discuss just how destructive the Trump years
2: have been.
0: See how that works unfucking the republic the calm well-researched yet appropriately profane narrator here to explain all that lies behind the primal scream that is the only reasonable response to our politics i think i just wrote their new tagline so you can find them by searching unftr they're good friends of ours going back way beyond this new production of theirs so check them out wherever you get your podcast or by clicking the link in our show notes
6: Some of the pro-Trump analysis that I saw from some of the guests on Fox yesterday. So let me throw three of their main arguments at you. All right. Number one is the House managers are trying to make a case that Trump is guilty of incitement. Not because he ever explicitly asked anyone to break into the Capitol, but because some of those people interpreted that way, him that way. He's not responsible for their interpretation of him using political language. What do you think about that?
7: Yeah, that will be, I believe, impeachment defense 1A from, from Trump's lawyers. Okay, first of all. A person does not have to stand up at a podium and say, I hereby incite you to insurrection in order to incite insurrection. We are allowed, we as the American public, we as whether it's a jury in a criminal case or we as our our representatives in Congress who will be deciding this case, it is okay to use common sense. And this is why the Democrats have been focusing on the big picture. They talk about all the coded language, all of the... Over the years, all the times when Donald Trump gave a little wink and a nod to violence being perpetrated on his behalf, on Donald Trump's effort to anger, to to whip this crowd essentially into a frenzy, to call them there, specifically on the date the votes are being counted, and then to set them off. And, And also, let's remember... This isn't the same as standing in front of any crowd. This is a crowd that had just heard Rudy Giuliani get behind the mic and shriek trial by combat. This crowd had just heard Representative Mo Brooks say it's time to kick ass and take names. And also, the crowd itself was a crowd that was, as the caller just said, was armed. A lot of them had zip ties, stun guns. This was a crowd that had, we now know, Many rep- or several people who were part of these sort of extremist groups, Proud Boys and others, the, the crowd was waving Confederate flags. There was people in the crowd wearing uh, anti-Semitic clothing, referencing the Holocaust and Auschwitz and that kind of thing. So this is not, you, you, you know, this is not going to make uh, give an address at the local YMCA. Um, so I think that's going to be the fundamental conflict here. Democrats are going to say it was obvious what he meant. Donald Trump knew his followers uh, understood his language, and he knew. that they would do exactly what uh, they ended up doing. And the response is going to be, but he never said anything that bad explicitly, and they got out of control and went beyond what he could have foreseen.
6: Another argument they made, the charge, of course, is incitement of insurrection. And they said insurrection would be an inappropriate word for what happened at the Capitol, therefore an inappropriate charge against Trump. It was a criminal riot, but an insurrection is more of an organized attempt, like with an army of overthrowing a government. I'm broadly paraphrasing this argument that I heard from from one of the pro-Trump lawyers. So insurrection, no. Your reaction?
7: Uh, that's an interesting one. I hadn't heard that one yet. That, that's creative. Um, I'm not buying that because look at the timing. I mean, again, as I said before, January 6th was not a date they chose because the weather was going to be nice in Washington, D.C. They chose January 6th because that is the statutory date, the legal date on which the votes are counted. They even timed the rally itself to the actual counting of the votes so um i mean it's not to, and, and look you see people going into that building going where is they're looking for the ballots they're looking for representatives so no, this is not the same as if he had incited, or if he went. Let, let's to use another Washington D.C. example. If 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 the uh, you know the Wizards, the basketball team, was playing, and he incited a riot there. I mean, no, this is this is po- politics specific. This is Congress specific. This is counting of the electoral votes, which is the final step in the transfer of power specific.
6: And their argument number three, and there may be others, but these are the ones that jumped out at me in this one Fox segment uh, that I saw with a couple of lawyers making Trump's case. Number three, when the Democrats argue that Trump didn't do much to restrain the rioters once the break-in began, and therefore he's guilty of incitement, well, that might be negligence, one of them said, but negligence is not incitement. Your reaction?
7: So two things. First of all, I I would argue the president has more of a duty than an average person. The president takes an oath to see that the laws are faithfully executed to uphold the Constitution. And if you see the Constitution being trampled on and people interfering with this core uh, constitutional function, then it's not okay as a president to say, "Eh, I don't have an affirmative duty to do anything. I'm just going to let it be. That is impeachable. We could argue about whether that's criminal, but that sure as heck is impeachable. The second thing is the, the The real, or or another relevant uh, aspect of his reaction after the fact is that it sheds light on what his intent was all along, because all the evidence I've seen shows that Donald Trump was anywhere between indifferent at best and gleeful at worst for him about what had happened. I've not seen a single piece of evidence suggesting that in the immediate aftermath of this attack, he was horrified or, or upset about what had happened. And look at his tweet, and I've said this several times, to me the most compelling single piece of evidence in this case about what Donald Trump meant and intended and wanted was the tweet that he sent at 6.01 p.m. that day, a couple hours after the insurrection had ended, the riot had ended, where he calls his... The people who had just done that, who had just torn the Capitol apart, and, and with death resulting, he called them great patriots, and he said, remember this day forever. Does that sound like somebody who's horrified or upset or offended by what they saw, or does that sound like somebody who's quite pleased at what he just saw? I think it's obviously the latter, and to me that shows that this is what he hoped they would do, this is what he wanted them to do, and this is what he intended them to do.
8: Every single person who breached the Capitol is guilty of a criminal offense, of a federal criminal offense. Now we can debate, we can talk kind of theoretically, nation of laws stuff about what should happen to people like Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz, or even Donald Trump, the people who incited, to my view, this insurrection. But at A bare minimum, the 800 people who breached the Capitol committed a crime and must be arrested and charged with that crime, even if the crime is as simple as all of them committed criminal trespass. All of them committed disorderly conduct. All of them um, illegally went into a restricted area of a federal building. All of them, at the least, need to be charged and prosecuted for that. What is clear is that the people who... You know, try to overthrow the government, violated some damn laws. Josh, remember, I'm funda- I'm a liberal. I'm anti-carceral. I, you know, when I was a lawyer, I was a defense. You know, fundamentally a defense side lawyer. Right. I, 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 I worry. About over prosecution, I worry about over punishing um, people. So I want the Justice Department to do its due diligence and make sure that the people charged with the most serious crimes committed the most serious offenses. I'm I'm all for that. I don't I don't need the guy who just went along with the crowd. I don't need him in jail for 20 years on sedition to conspiracy. I don't think that that is justice. But it's also not justice for that guy to walk free.
9: So let me ask you as a former defense practitioner about some of the defenses that have been put forward by some of the people who are have been charged with lesser offenses. There's uh, one of my favorites is the rabbi from Palm Harbor, Florida, who's been uh, uh, charged with the crimes you listed, knowingly entering a restricted building, disorderly conduct in a restricted building, violent entry on Capitol grounds. His defense attorneys say, quote, he just followed the crowd over to the Capitol, just intending to be nothing more than a spectator and ended up going into the Capitol after it was opened up, close quote. He just followed the crowd. Does that work for black people? It doesn't work for
8: any people, right? Like, what do you mean, end it up? How are you just going to end up inside the cap? Look, there were people who were just following the crowd who went to be spectators that stayed outside the building. I'm not calling for us to go round up and arrest all of those people who went to a protest, protested, stayed outside, didn't hurt nobody, didn't beat anybody, and didn't violate federal law. They have positions that I disagree with, but I don't think they should be arrested. This guy went inside the Capitol. You don't. That doesn't just happen. This guy made an active decision to take steps inside to a restricted area. Anybody who did that, who was not protected by whether it's whiteness, whether it's MAGA anybody who did that that was not protected by what the Republican party exists to protect would be arrested on the spot. John, it's important to understand that if this had been a predominantly black mob or predominantly Brown mob, everybody who went into the Capitol, they wouldn't have been allowed to go home. The police would have brought paddy wagons, literally buses, you know, that, that remember everybody talks about the zip tie guy. The police would have had zip tie handcuffs on the scene and just rounded up people as they came out of the building. Like that—that is—that is what would have happened to any other mob. So for this guy um, to say that he he should somehow avoid prosecution and accountability for his actions because he was just following along—that that is not a valid legal defense.
9: Well, let me try another defense on you. There's another guy, a former Marine from Pennsylvania. Photos show him inside the Capitol building grabbing a police officer and shoving him against the wall. His defense is that he, quote, just got caught up in the moment, close quote. Does that work for black people who grab and shove cops? No.
8: And quite frankly, there's there, there are very few black people who could grab and shove a cop caught up in the moment and live to tell about it. Right. Because that's the other thing that we saw. On the day of the riot, of the insurrection, we saw incredible permissiveness by law enforcement. One person was shot by law enforcement, was shot and killed by law enforcement. But law enforcement did not open up a hail of gunfire. We didn't see the kind of uh, police brutality that we see at protests against police brutality brought to bear on this white insurrectionist mob. So the fact that this man was able to put his hands on a police officer and A, live, B, not be arrested on the spot, C, not get punched in the mouth on the spot, the fact that that was even allowed to happen is already an extreme example of white privilege for him to think that now he can roll that board to escape prosecution after the fact for his crime is just, it's again, it's a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous argument um, that should not. And I don't believe will hold up in any reasonable court of
9: law. The Washington post reported recently that there's a debate going on inside the justice department about whether to charge people who's, only crime, in quotation marks, was entering the Capitol building on January 6th. What's your opinion?
8: Yeah, th- I don't like that argument at all. I, I, I can't accept that at all. Again, there, there's no, aside from the black-white thing, like literally aside from the fact that this would never happen, they would never be having these discussions um, if it was a predominantly black mob. There's, there's also the simple issue here that the, 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 why do we prosecute anybody? Right? Like, why do we, like, why do we have laws? Why do we have prosecutions? Why do we criminalize certain otherwise petty offenses like trespass, like um, breaking and entering and, and, and that kind of stuff? These, these uh, uh, crimes that are not, you know, rape, murder, robbery, that kind of stuff. Well, it's because we feel that letting people get away with these low level crimes is permissive of other more serious crimes, right? It's not, it's not that we think that trespass is the most dangerous thing in the world, but we think that if we allow trespassers to trespass, well then eventually some trespassers will rape, will murder, will steal, will will arson or, or, or what have you, right? So the argument, for not prosecuting these people really would have to be something along the lines of their their crimes were not that important. Yes, they technically violated the law, but the substance of what they were doing is not that important. The substance of what these people were doing was trying to overthrow a free and fair election. The substance of what these people were trying to do was to make a person who lost the election the winner and the president of the United States. Like that was their plan. And while some of them executed that plan in the most violent manner, everybody who executed that plan in a legal matter must be held accountable and must be brought to justice.
10: The big lie that I had in mind with interwar Germany is the idea of a stab in the back. Germany lost the First World War for for simple reasons. It lost the First World War because it had to fight a war on two fronts because the Americans joined the war and so even though Germany basically won on the Eastern Front they got beat on the Western Front in, in 1918 by by the Americans supporting the French and the British and a number of other allies it's really it's not that complicated they lost you know they lost a million men in the summer and fall of 1918 a million Americans are arriving at the same time they were beaten but the story that the, that the German commanders told was we didn't lose. We never lost the war. We were betrayed on the home front by the left. We were betrayed on the home front by the Jews. And th- this story, which became known as the stab in the back, starts in 1918. The reason, of course, it's troubling for me and, and what I think about the American future is that that story is still present uh, 15 years on. When those commanders, you know, are, are no longer commanding a war, when we're in a different situation, when, when we're in a Great Depression, when the Nazis are rising to power, that stab in the back story is part of Hitler's anti-Semitism. It's a part of an even bigger lie that Hitler tells about the Jews being responsible for everything which is wrong for, for Germany. So that's that's why I'm wondering about this. And that's why I think America, in a way, is at a crossroads for a lot of reasons, but also with respect to simple truth and lies. If if Republicans, because they bear a particular responsibility here, if Republican leaders succeed in keeping this lie going past the Trump era then Republican politics can become a kind of competition to see who gets to be the bearer of the story of martyrdom, right? This is what Mr. Cruz and Mr. Hawley are clearly trying to do. Who gets to tell their voters that they were the martyrs, that they were the ones who were betrayed, they were the ones who were stabbed in the back, they were the ones who deserve revenge. This is what I worry about, because history tells us that the person who invents the lie isn't necessarily the person who then later brings it to terrible fruition.
6: So to follow up on what you just said, on the model of the gamers versus the breakers in the Republican Party, do you think people like Senator Josh Hawley, who you name, really want to break democracy? I
10: I mean, it seems to me that there's a pattern here, and the, the, and, and the pattern, not just today with Hawley and Cruz and McConnell and so on, but the pattern going about, going, going back to Reagan really is that you have this tension in the Republican party between people who are angry at the system, so called, and the fact that the Republican party basically exists by managing the system. That's a tension. And that tension has been overcome by various kinds of ideological maneuvers, by saying, you know, we're governing against the government, or we're governing against the elites, or we're going to we're going to we're going to go work for government to make government smaller. But the tension's always there. I mean, inherently, the Republican Party is a is a managing party. It manages elections. Um, It manages a good part of the economy, but a lot of its voter base and some of its and some of its leaders are interested in some kind of revolution or some kind of dramatic change. I think what Mr. Trump's big lie did was make this fissure visible and more real because the people who are basically gamers like like Senator McConnell, they they went with it for a while. You know, thinking that it would peter out. They were with Trump, you know, so long as they could get things out of Trump. But then you have people like Mr. Cruz or Mr. Hawley, who, of course, just like Mr. McConnell, and for that matter, Mr. Trump, know that the whole thing is a lie. They know the whole thing is a scam and a grift, of course, but they see potential in the lie itself in for the future. And of course, if you take a big lie like this into the future, what you're saying is we, you know, not just Mr. Trump. Should, should be allowed to win when he loses, but I should be allowed to win when I lose, right? When I run for president in 2024, I want to see the same scenario. If I don't win the, the electoral college, I'm going to cry fraud. Um, and I'm going to expect that Congress is going to appoint me, assuming that there are enough Republicans in Congress to do that. So, I mean, the short answer, I wanted to explain it, but the short answer to your question is yes. I think that anybody who voted against the confirmation of the electoral college vote um, should probably be considered someone who is not really in favor of American representative democracy. And I think the people who led that charge, who opportunistically led that charge, knowing that they were telling a lie or repeating one, namely Sanders, Hawley and Cruz, are are most clearly suspect of being people who who would be happy to take power amidst the ruins.
11: The New York Times on January 9th, 2021, offered an example of how Biden's efforts will to appease Republicans, e.g. hire Republicans or centrist will is done to sort of unify the country, right? So this happened with Obama in 2009 as well, that he was told to unify by centrist media. And the way you do that is by staffing your administration with Republicans. The fact that that creates what the wealthy donor class wants, and we'll get into this later, but the donor class of people who funded the Lincoln Project is they basically want a steady state pro-capitalist government that doesn't have the unpredictability and gross veneer of Trump, but basically keeps things as they are, that is conservative, that doesn't really change things. And so New York Times wrote, quote, so far, Mr. Biden has not taken a position on impeachment, let alone the broader agenda of launching criminal investigations. He has said he would leave any decision about it to his Justice Department, which he has promised will return to pre-Trump norm of maintaining independence from the White House. Definitely was not a pre-Trump norm, especially under Bush. Bush. His choice of Merrick Garland, a centrist judge, as his nominee for attorney general is another indication of his more measured approach to pursuing investigations and indictments. His stance reflects not only his politics, but a natural inclination to not settle scores. Much like Mr. Obama, whom Mr. Biden served for eight years as vice president, Mr. Obama said shortly from his own inauguration that he believed the nation needed to, quote, look forward as opposed to looking backwards. Exactly. The article notes that others across the Democratic Party are calling for accountability and action specifically from the progressive wing because they believe, you know, maybe falsely, but they believe that if you want to prevent future Trumps and future excesses of, well, you know, Let's just start with basic denying of election results, which, of course, is an incitement to violence, which is, of course, what happened, the most predictable thing of all time, that that should be something you hold to account so other people don't try to do that. Other people don't try to rile up fascist mobs to go kill legislators. And that the reason why you have punishment, at least in theory, is to prevent future people from doing that, not just to punish people in the present, but to create a standard. So holding people
5: to account for, you know, incitement to violence for acts of insurrection against the government that they themselves work within. This is somehow framed so often in the media and also our political discourse, of course, but like really it finds itself into so many articles. This idea of settling scores, right? That accountability is really just sort of like petty kind of grievance politics as opposed to justice, any sort of idea of actually holding people to account. Now, of course, these articles were written before Trump was successfully impeached for the second time, but you can kind of see how this rhetoric works to frame up what the conversation is even going to be about. If you look back at the fall of last year, right around the election, there was so much of this as well. So for instance, there's a column by conservative writer Henry Olson columnist for the Washington Post published November 9th, 2020. So written shortly after the election, it's headlined, talk is cheap. Here's what Biden needs to do to be a unity president. And so in this piece, Olson writes this, quote, Democrats may disagree strongly with many of them. He's talking about conservatives. That's what makes them Democrats. But genuine unity means taking a hard look at what conservatives and Republicans believe, and finding out what elements of those can be accepted or tolerated. He goes on to say this, quote, Building real unity requires hard work and compromise. It will mean not pressing progressive concerns too far and too fast in touchy cultural areas. It will mean avoiding the temptation to bypass a Republican-controlled Senate via executive actions of dubious constitutionality. It will mean acting less like Bush and Obama and more like Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton, whose genuine bipartisanship address serious problems such as Social Security solvency and the perennial budget deficit. Partisan differences will and should remain, but common ground can be found if Republicans are treated with understanding and respect." Now, of course, this is when Olson thought That Georgia would not flip. So the Republicans would maintain control of the Senate. Obviously, that uh, did not come to pass. But so much of this is all about Biden, just basically doing whatever Republicans want. One of my favorite lines in there is not pressing progressive concerns in touchy cultural areas. I wonder what that means.
11: Yeah, cultural areas, otherwise known as basic rights for LGBTQ and black people wanting equality otherwise known as trivial cultural issues, whereas privatizing Social Security is an urgent moral necessity. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of too many of these to count. Time magazine, after Biden won the election, put his the title of his speech, his acceptance speech, A Time to Heal on the cover. and the article about the speech, they said, quote, Our cover this week, an image from the event where Biden and Harris delivered victory speeches on November 7th, includes the phrase from Biden's remarks and from Ecclesiastes, A Time to Heal. It's reminiscent of a long ago time cover following another season of division and pain on the 1974 issue featuring newly inaugurated President Gerald Ford with the line, The Healing Begins. Now, what is Gerald Ford known for? He's known for pardoning Nixon for all of his crimes, right? So healing, healing is elite immunity. And this is, trust me when I tell you this is going to apply to Trump, because even though I think Trump is not like Nixon, where he is more overtly despised by elites in both Republican and Democratic Party. is a big fucking pain in the ass and a nuisance. They still don't want to violate the precedent mm-hmm. of going after the president. And this can't be – this has to be understood. So the impeachment, it's to sort of say you did It doesn't really mean anything. So instead of saying, wow, Gerald Ford just – pardon Nixon and he's going to let everybody go and we're just going to kind of act like nothing happened. And we need to maintain the brand of the Republican party, right? That's what Lincoln project was about. This, but all the shit we're going to talk about today is it's about making sure that Trump doesn't sully the Republican brand because the wealthy, the super wealthy, need equally powerful two-party pro-corporate parties because that's how you make sure nothing progressive ever happens. And this is why Biden repeatedly says, we need a strong Republican party. Pelosi says, we need a strong Republican party. This is a Pete Peterson centrist dogma. It's a signal to donors really more than anything of saying that, oh, don't worry, we're not actually gonna do anything serious because we don't really take politics seriously. Our job is to maintain the general order and make sure that things run well. These are the kinds of things that I think more than anything, so cynicism when I see Trump do a legal thing after a legal thing, after a legal thing, and then he gets away with it, or Bush does a legal thing and gets away with it, as we talked about in our previous episode about looking forward, not backwards, then why would I, you know, meanwhile, I'm getting hit up by the IRS or I'm getting pulled over for speeding, or I get some bullshit or my son gets him, you know, caught with drugs. Like that double standard, of course, makes people bitter towards politics. And so what is basically just a, Gentlemen's agreement to not meaningfully punish those in power, high positions of power, not some bullshit Louisiana legislator who gets stinged by the FBI, but like real elites, right? Is framed as a positive thing. It's framed as a warm and fuzzy thing. So you're actually healing, right?
12: Years ago, Barack Obama was set to take office In a very similar situation to the one Joe Biden is facing today A deeply unpopular Republican president Who first entered office despite losing the popular vote Had just overseen a series of unprecedented calamities That caused misery and suffering for millions of people Every time Democrats win the presidency It's like a long-lost uncle left them a mansion in their will Then they open the front door and find out He was a hoarder who made his own cheese Oh, dear God, what am I supposed to do with this? It smells like the inside of a mummy and on top of all that, the Bush era was also rife with corruption and abuses of power, including torture, warrantless wiretapping, CIA black sites and the destruction of evidence. And while Obama set to work rolling back some of the damage done by the Bush administration, while also shepherding through historic achievements like health care and financial reform, he made one early decision before he even became president that has had consequences to this
6: day. Will you appoint a special prosecutor, ideally Patrick Fitzgerald, to independently investigate the gravest crimes of the Bush administration, including torture and warrantless wiretapping?
8: Um, We're still evaluating how we are going to approach the whole issue of uh, interrogations, detentions, uh, and so forth. Uh, And obviously we're going to be looking at past practices. Uh, And I don't believe that anybody is above the law. Uh, On the other hand, I also have a belief that we need to look forward as as opposed to looking backwards.
12: I appreciate Obama's optimism, but looking forward, not backwards, didn't work. The people responsible for the catastrophes of the Bush era stuck around because they never faced any consequences. Karl Rove, Ari Fleischer, and John Yu were regular guests on Fox. John Bolton worked for Trump. Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh are on the Supreme Court. And a bunch of other Bush acolytes started the Lincoln Project to rehab their reputation. Anyway, the point is, if we don't hold accountable the people responsible for eroding our democracy, they'll just remain a part of public life and commit the same crimes again if given the chance. That was true in the Bush era, and it's true now the Trump administration as we enter his second impeachment trial. That's a point Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio Cortez made during a powerful live stream last week.
1: In these past three weeks, I felt like it was important to give a window of opportunity, right? Maybe in some world, Senators Josh Hawley or Senator Ted Cruz or Representative Mo Brooks would say, you know what? I was mistaken. And now in retrospect, I see that it incited something that I never wanted to incite. And for that, I am sorry. But no, they've had almost a month and they haven't said that. They have doubled down. What that tells me is that when given another window of political opportunity for themselves, even if they know that it means that it will endanger their colleagues, they will do it again. She's
12: right. These guys have made it very clear that if they have their chance to advance their political career by feeding their base unhinged lies that undermine democracy, they'll absolutely do it again. Shame alone doesn't work on these people. If it did, Ted Cruz would have shaved that beard months ago. I mean, he looks like the guy who makes it to the final four on Survivor, even though it takes him two days to hack open a coconut. That thing has more bear patches than a golf course in November. Cruz should be expelled from Congress and then banished into the woods by John Lithgow. Get out of here! Why can't you go back from where you came? Looks like the woke cancel culture is at it again. I expected more from the Hendersons. Also, it's insane that Cruz and Holly are supposed to be jurors in this trial. When a good argument can be made that they were accomplices. It's like if there was a jury of minions for the trial of group. A movie that Universal refuses to make no matter how many times I pitch it. They keep saying, we don't think kids like courtroom dramas. And then I say, well, how come my kids watch Law and & Order? And then they say, why do they watch Law and & Order? And I say, I don't know. I'm watching it and they're in the room. Are you going to make my movie or not? In fact, several senators who were party to the big lie that led to the insurrection keep getting invited on Sunday shows for some reason. And they've been using that platform to push more lies and discredit the impeachment trial like Lindsey Graham, who personally called up the Georgia Secretary of State, and tried to get him to throw out legal ballots over the weekend. Graham tried to argue, all at the same time, that Trump shouldn't be tried, that he does deserve blame for the riot, and also that he's still the most influential Republican in the country. Yeah, I think I'm ready to move on. I'm ready to end the impeachment trial because I think it's blatantly unconstitutional. I'm ready to get on. We're trying to solve the nation's problems. And as to Donald Trump, he is the most... A popular figure in the Republican Party he had a consequential presidency. January the 6th was a very bad day for America, and he'll get his share of blame in history. You still believe President Trump is the best face for the Republican Party? Yes or no? I think he's, I think he's the, yeah, well, I, I think, yeah, I think, I think Donald Trump's policies serve the country well. First of all, how can Trump be the face of the Republican Party if we never see his literal face? He refused to testify or offer any statement to the impeachment trial He's just been shuffling around Mar-a-Lago like an old silent film star Who never made it in talkies because he sounds like he's talking through a wet sock He hibernates at Mar-a-Lago like Punsutawney Phil If Phil got fired for stealing office supplies We know you're in there, Phil! Come out with a stapler! Phil Jr., go out and show him your shadow, it'll buy me six more weeks Second, Lindsay, think about what you're saying Just put these two thoughts together. You said Trump deserves blame for a violent insurrection that breached the Capitol for the first time in 200 years, injured 140 police officers, and tried to overthrow democracy. And also, he's the face of the Republican Party. So what does that say about the Republican Party? You're so close to getting it. It's like explaining a riddle to a toddler. So if the dad took the son to the hospital, but the doctor said the patient was also their son, then the doctor must be, oh, I think I saw this on an episode of Maury one time. ma. Where are my VHS tapes, Amore? You threw them in the garbage. Why? For your precious moments, dolls. Meemaw, you know what? You know what my most precious moment's gonna be when I move out of this one-horse town? Oh, you can cry your crocodile tears all you want, Meemaw. It's not gonna change nothing. Now, where's my suitcase? Why is it filled with precious moment dolls? We can't let these guys succeed in diminishing the trial or brushing it aside. It should be a mechanism not just for holding Trump personally accountable, but for examining the forces that led to the insurrection in full view of the public.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with the broadcast highlighting a portion of AOC's Instagram Live recounting her experience in the Capitol. Democracy Now! played clips of AOC and Rashida Tlaib recounting their experiences on the House floor. Representative Cory Bush spoke with a message for her Republican colleagues asking that they all stand together against white supremacy. The broadcast then ran down the case made by the Democratic House managers in their pre-impeachment trial brief. The Brian Lehrer Show discussed and debunked some of the conservative talking points in defense of Trump. Start Making Sense focused their attention on the insurrectionists and all those who entered the Capitol building complex illegally. The United States of Anxiety drew a comparison to pre Nazi Germany and how the rise of Nazism was helped along by a big lie about the loss of the First World War. Citations needed exposed the healing con propaganda that always tells Democrats that the way to heal the country's divides is to do whatever Republicans want, and Seth Meyers on late night explained why we need accountability in the public for all to see for all those who threaten to destabilize the country. That's what everyone heard, but members also got bonus clips from past-present examining the GOP's failure to hold Marjorie Taylor Greene accountable for any of her words or actions and what that means for their party, plus what Trump can teach us about con law got into the nitty-gritty details about the legal definition of incitement. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information every request is granted no questions asked and now uh, well we'd usually hear from you but I am uh, desperately low on on voicemails so I'm gonna skip to a New sort of game experiment <laughs> that I came up with. I haven't even, like, this is brand new. I, I came up with this idea yesterday and I'm flying a bit by the seat of my pants and I thought, uh, yeah, let's try it. Let, let's, let's throw this out to the masses and just see what happens. So this new game that I came up with, it's sort of constructed on the idea of the New Yorker caption contest. You know, it's a it's a way to sort of give you a premise and see what sort of responses we get from the audience. And the game, instead of talking about comics, is about learning how misleading misinformation works, you know, disinformation in the media, particularly headlines. So instead of a caption, we're writing headlines. So I'm going to give you three stories. You know, my my first thought was, I'll just give you a story, like a comic to do a caption for. But I thought, well, you know, maybe one story won't be very good, or maybe you'd be interested in a different one. So I'm going to give you three stories. You can write a headline for all three of them. You can pick which one you particularly like, take it however you like. So I'm going to give you three headlines, and your task, your homework, is to learn a little bit about the story, you know, get get some of the details and then write the most misleading but truthful headline that you can. So I'll give you the headlines and then I'll give you some tips. First headline, the Biden administration is launching a review about Guantanamo Bay. Apparently, they're looking into closing Guantanamo Bay a prison once again, so sort they're of launching a review. So that there's a story. Second story is that the Biden administration is apparently rescinding the Medicaid work requirements. So there have been work requ- requirements attached to Medicaid. It's been controversial. Apparently, Biden is looking to rescind it. Uh, So that's a story for you to look into. And then the third is that Biden is beginning to allow asylum seekers who are currently waiting in Mexico to enter the U.S. So that was a Trump policy saying, if you're seeking asylum, then you can stay in Mexico until we get to you, which it might be never if they got their way. Biden administration is reversing that to some degree. And so you can look into the details of that. So those are the three stories to choose from, and here's some tips on how to be misleading. So some di- some classic disinformation techniques is to mischaracterize or sort of twist or cherry pick facts so that you are technically saying things that are true but really mischaracterizing it this often goes hand in hand with clickbait headlines so like you maybe get some bonus points if, if your headline is is really clickbaity then uh the, another classic manipulating data uh what you might think of as lies damn lies and statistics so if if there are any statistics related to those stories you could maybe highlight those but in a misleading way Uh, Another example is appeals to emotion. Classic. Like it usually goes hand in hand with one of the others. Like you might mischaracterize something or like really emphasize something that doesn't deserve to be emphasized for emotional appeal to get people angry about it uh, when it doesn't necessarily deserve it. And then the last example I have for you is stoking polarization. Again, sort of goes hand in hand with some of the others, like appeals to emotion. But if you're I you know, I, I chose three stories that all have to do with Biden. And so as sort of a launching off point, it's pretty easy for a mischaracterized uh, characterized or or sort of a misleading headline to stoke polarization, if the point is to say that. Biden is doing something terrible, and he's the worst, and then it is sort of naturally divided on uh, polarizing lines. So, uh, if you can write something true, but with a wildly partisan angle, like, that's pretty good, that's pretty, you know, can be pretty misleading, but extra points, if you can write a headline that is really effectively a lie, like, it's so misleading that it's basically a lie, but manages to technically not say anything incorrect it i mean it's a real art form which is why i think it could be a fun game and i'm excited to see what what people come up with and uh, I, I don't think i've ever assigned homework before this is kind of a new a new thing but th- that's why this is an experiment so let me know your thoughts uh, give it a shot you can send in your responses by email or you can leave a voicemail you know all the normal ways, however you like it. So the three headlines, once again, and I'll put these in the show notes. Are uh, there's a review to close Guantanamo Bay prison? They are rescinding Medicaid work requirements and talk about changing the policy about asylum seekers currently in Mexico and their ability to enter the U.S. while their cases are pending. Join in the fun and help us all learn about the, the mechanics of media manipulation while you're at it. Uh, as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for all of their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. And thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, webmastering, occasional bonus show co-host, and so on. And of course, thanks to members who uh, sign up to support the show themselves or purchase gift memberships to share the show with others, all at bestoftheleft.com slash support. That is absolutely how the program survives, and now everyone can earn rewards and support the show just by telling everyone you know about it using our referralmatic system at bestofleft.com/refer. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen so coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from best